good morning, everyone. This morning we have a very intriguing show, and the timing could not be better, because we're going to be talking tonight about spying, among other things, mainly uh, psychic spying. And this is kind of an interesting program to a backdrop, which was kind of tailor-made for this uh, program, which, as you know, was uh, delayed because of uh, rain from last week. Uh, let me tell you who are new to the show how to go to a section we call Radio with Pictures, where we have links and images and all that, to provide during the show kind of background items that we discuss uh, on the air. You go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, and you'll see tonight a very interesting banner, which was made up by one of our uh, uh, guests tonight. It's called Ghost Warrior, features prominently the name Targ, Williams, and Womack. Click on that, that takes you to tonight's guest page, and right under the guest page where it says to listen to the show, you'll see fast links to items in white, and you'll see my name, Russell Targ's name, Jonathan's name, and Lori Williams' name. Click on my name, that takes you to that section of the page, which we call Radio with Pictures. The first five items are kind of a sequential description of this very very bizarre story, which uh, came to us courtesy, we believe, of China, having to do with a balloon, a reconnaissance uh, spying balloon, which uh, left China, drifted across the North Pacific, across the um, uh, Aleutian Islands, and then down across Canada, entered the United States by way of Idaho, crossed over into Montana, and has in the focus of a tremendous amount of public discussion and news coverage and network broadcasts and web coverage and magazines and newspapers and all the mainstream press looking at all of this like what in the world is going on? And I want to go into this tonight a little bit because it's the background to our conversation with perchance the most preeminent of the remote viewers on planet Earth. What do I mean by remote viewers? Well, let me kind of give you a background sketch here. Our primary guest tonight is Russell Targ, who was a physicist and an author and a pioneer in the development of laser and laser applications and a co-founder at the Stanford Research Institute, better known as SRI, of its investigation into psychic abilities of human beings back in the 1970s and 1980s. SRI is a research and development think tank in Menlo Park, California, which is just kind of south of San Francisco. Um, called Remote Viewing, this work in the psychic area has been published in Nature, the Proceedings of the Institute for Electronic and Electrical Engineers, and the Proceedings of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Targ has a bachelor's degree in physics from Queens College and did graduate work in physics at Columbia University. He received two National Aeronautics and Space Administration awards for inventions and contributions to lasers and laser communications. In the 1980s, in the early 80s, in 83 and 84, he accepted invitations to present remote viewing demonstrations and address the USSR Academy of Science on his research. He is the author of nine books dealing with <clears throat> the scientific investigation of psychic abilities and Buddhist approaches to the transformation of consciousness, including Mind Reach, Scientists Look at Psychic Abilities, Miracles of the Mind, Exploring Non-Local Consciousness and Spiritual Healing, Limitless Mind, a Guide to Remote Viewing and Transformation of Consciousness, his autobiography, which is Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker. That was done back in 2008. And his current book is The Reality of ESP, A Physicist Proof of Psychic Abilities. Um, in addition, we'll be joined, as you know, by uh, Jonathan Womack. John um, has been an experiencer in the phenomenon of leaving your body, out-of-body experiences, uh, and he's also done a great deal of work in the remote viewing area, and you might want to consult 
the detailed bio <clears throat> sorry the detailed biographies of our guests tonight which are on the other side of midnight webpage and last but not least we have with us Lori Lori Williams who um well Lori has been involved in remote viewing since uh back in 1997 and she is uh CEO of a major uh she's taught rather CEOs of major corporations celebrities was number 1 on the New York Times bestseller list she's spoken with archaeologists scientists physicians stay-at-home moms and dads as well as hundreds of students from all walks of life and as a remote viewer she says i work both nationally and internationally with individuals, corporations, archaeologists, law enforcement, and many more. And you can read through her website, which is listed there uh, under her bio there under Lori Williams, and you'll see many interesting additional background sets of information. And without further ado, let me introduce Russell. Russell Targ, it is so great to finally talk to you on the other side of midnight. I'm very happy to be with you during these exciting times. What I want to do is I want to kind of meander around your life in the next uh, couple, three hours. I want to talk about the Chinese right first and foremost, because it seems to me this is a project tailor-made for the science of remote viewing, given that there is such interesting, contradictory, and frankly, probably disinformational information available from public sources on the web all around the world. What in the world were or are the Chinese up to, and why have they screwed up so incredibly badly to so many people in such a highly visible way? And have you tried to remote view either their intentions, their technology, or both in this current incident? I haven't done anything psychic concerning them. All I've done is read the New York Times and I've been reading that for the past 60 years, so I do have some idea what they might be doing. I think China has done this as a piece of theater to get ready to invade hot Taiwan. I think they, I think that they don't give a damn about what's going on in the middle of the United States. They've taken tons of pictures of that with their satellites. I think this is an experiment. Does they take their giant balloon, fly it out here, and they want to see what will the United States do if China comes and gives us a good slap of the face? And they discovered that they can slap us in the face day after day, and America will do nothing. And I think that really looks very bad for the future of Taiwan. Hmm. Okay, you'll understand there are different points of view on this. Of For course. instance, there's a school of thought that says we obviously saw this coming, you know, a thousand more miles away. And because of information which is not in the general public, we decided to let it proceed to try to figure out what were they doing. And most of all, because by allowing it to drift over the continent of the United States, we had direct access to it literally communicating by means of satellite back to whatever home base launched it, the uh, PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and we could get incredible access to codes, to digital coding techniques, to their communications capabilities, the power sources of this balloon technology, and then ultimately when we downed it uh, precisely seven miles off the Carolina coast in a mere 47 feet of water this afternoon, we're going to bring up the remains of it and obviously do a deep, pun intended, deep dive into the forensics of all the technology that we will recover. And so I would argue that by allowing it to do what it did, which was basically nothing because its uh, transmissions could be easily blocked by current state-of-the-art countermeasures here, we did find out something about their capabilities and their efforts to communicate two-way, and that might have been the reason for us allowing it to track slowly over a week on the jet stream across the country in the first place. 
Yeah, I'm here. I was just getting an, an announcement on my... Anyway, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I have no special information, no psychic information, but I would think that it scares the hell out of scares the hell out of the people on Taiwan, seeing that China can do whatever they want to do with the United States, however humiliating it is. Uh, United States won't do anything. But that's only one perspective. I mean, don't you think that the Taiwanese, given they've lived under the guns of the Red Chinese for you know half a century or more, don't you think they're a little more sophisticated? They know the kind of games the Chinese have been playing. The Chinese have been bombarding Taiwan with propaganda assaults going back and forth across this invisible demarcation line with overflights, close flights, rocket tests, ballistic missile tests. I mean, there's been a whole mini war between Taiwan and the mainland, and no one has done anything because obviously they don't want to precipitate a, an actual hot war. One lone little balloon which got an incredible amount of public attention. By the way, you're aware that there was a second balloon that the Pentagon announced drifting over Latin America on Friday night, right? I've heard about that, yes. Well, this indicates a pattern. And it seems to me that if it's the Chinese and they're claiming the first one was an accident, which, of course, no one believes, the idea of having a second one similarly equipped, and we've seen no imagery no video, no ground reports of the second one. It just came from the Pentagon last night. It seems that obviously that knocks down the idea of some random act of nature, or as they said in their uh, press release, a force majeure. Interesting that the Chinese know French. Um, but in other words, I'm just wondering if this is not the front false Western town for something which at a higher level is much more interesting and the idea of letting it play out after we'd ascertained that this was not really a threat of any kind is to see what the Chinese are up to and what might happen next. And obviously, you know, for those folks that say, oh, it was a, you know, a test of a, an amph mission or, you know, a biological warfare, you don't have to test this stuff. We've been doing, bio, you know, balloon stuff on Earth for like 150 years. It's an incredible test. I think Chinese did it as a test of the United States resolve. Yeah, but that's not how you can view this. Just because we don't shoot something down doesn't mean we're not serious. You know, why shoot first and ask questions later as opposed to find out what they're up to? And then we did the appropriate thing when it was safe. Well, the thing that, that China is most interested in right now is what is the United States going to do? as they start moving their ships around Taiwan. They've been doing that for the last year. And we've been very, very, shall we say, insistent that there's a, a line that we're not going to let them cross. And obviously, at this point, they have not crossed it. I think what China is looking far more to, to see what we're going to do with Taiwan, is what we're doing with Ukraine. Ukraine well, really... Why do, you, why do you think they... Uh, Flew the Zeppelin over America. I don't know. I think it was part of either it really was a military experiment that went radically awry because these things were technological. You communicate with them through satellite, you know, remote control. It was partially maneuverable because it did seem to hover in places and not be totally at the prey of the winds. Yeah, I don't think it's all it's all a military experiment. Because it's just less information than the satellites. The thing uh, is, it's flying along uh, over our farm farmland and over some missile bases, but they don't learn anything new. The well, I, I would I, I would tend to agree with you that there are much better means for really gaining information, going all the way back to when you know Eisenhower and the CIA and the Air Force collaborated on something called Project Corona, which was the first secret development of spy satellites with returning film from orbit and all that. And they have so many overflights for their satellites, both passive cameras, radar, you know, this balloon thing is totally useless. And for people who say that it was a unique means of gathering low altitude information, do you know how many civil aviation aircraft are registered in the United States right now? Just in the U S 
Thousands. M- millions. Millions. Each one of those can be chartered by a Chinese agent loaded with information and flown to any U.S. Air Force base missile field. So why do you think our government keeps lying to us? Every day we have somebody with a chest full of ribbons saying what a big threat this is. Which, which one? What, what threat? All, we, we, every day we have some new Air Force or Army general standing up saying that we've got to do something uh, because the balloons is such a big threat. Because it's all, know, it's, everyone knows that that's not true. Because I think it's all part of this multi-layered kabuki theater, and that's why I strongly suspect that it was only the front for something much more interesting, and we may never, depending upon you know the leaks, find out what the real reason, A, why it was flown, and B, why we apparently, until it was clear of the coast on the east, did nothing. Neither one of those do I believe at a surface level. I think this is a much deeper puzzle, and it's not bad timing that it happened now, just as Secretary Blinken was going to go and meet with the president of China for the first time in six years. It makes a very convenient way for both nations to not have that meeting in a very visible, for most people, easy to understand excuse when in fact there may be things behind the scenes. Again, we're dealing with such limited controlled propaganda that making any sweeping assumptions based on what we think we know or what we're being fed to me is not, you know, very uh, uh, logical. Well, I have no more information uh, than anybody else. My opinion is that China is skillfully doing this as an opportunity to test American resolve, why do you think they did it? I don't know. I did have an interesting thought earlier in the week that given that we've now established offices um, at the Pentagon and at NASA literally dealing with UFOs and ETs, even regardless of what the propaganda is, the folks on the inside know that's what we're dealing with. We know there is at least one third-party force with extraordinary, you know, almost godlike technology running around in our skies all over the world with complete impunity. And it occurred to me that maybe the balloon, or balloons, plural, was not from China at all, that that's the mutually agreed on by China and the U.S. excuse that, in fact, it was an E.T. spacecraft hovering camouflage to look like a balloon in, you know, television, long-range lenses, whatever, and a new player in the ET game has kind of joined the game, and given that they may not have ever been here, and they may not trust whoever they're allied with or in opposition to out there, they are trying to get their own ground truth, and they decided to use the camouflage balloon technique And the reason we did nothing is because you don't tug on Superman's cape into the wind. You don't pull on the mask of the old Lone Ranger, etc. And so we held our fire to see which of these alternatives this thing turned out to be. Because if we did something wrong, a la the 1950s, when we actually shot at and shot down some UFOs, one could inadvertently trigger an interplanetary or interstellar war. And that would not be very good for everybody. So I'm not saying I'm married to the idea. I just think that given the ascendancy of the extraordinary anti-gravity vehicle technology at both the Pentagon and NASA, and even in the president's latest NDAA where he signed this legal liberation for leaks, what might come out from inside from contractors military personnel, whatever, is the real story, which would be legally, you know, um, protected. So it could be told in the Times and the Post and on networks. And so this may not be the end of the story. It may be just the beginning of the next phase of whatever ET in, in, you know, surveillance, invasion, occupation that we've been living through for the last at least 70 years. 
as a possibility, the Chinese immediately claimed ownership before yes. we did before we did anything. Yes, so and that, that this that's, would have to be an American agreement with the Chinese. And it was very kind and gentle. It was it was they actually said things like apology and you know uh, they, they, they apologize. In other words, the the language of the Chinese in this communique where they took responsibility, was very different than their normal communiques leading up to this over the last several years. And I just think that we know almost nothing, given the fact that I've listened to experts on all sides. I even watched a a major chunk of Fox tonight to get their perspectives. Given that all the experts are saying this is unprecedented and this is amazing and mind-boggling and they don't understand the Chinese rationale because – as you said earlier, we've got much better satellite technology, which to the general public and all nations is invisible, even though this kind of surveillance stuff is derogatory and is going on 24-7 on all sides. For this to be so visible meant that someone wanted it to be visible, and for us to be so restrained meant that we wanted it to appear that we were restrained, and that tells me there's so much more of this iceberg beneath the ocean than we're seeing. Well, we'll know for a fact in a couple of days when they pull the stuff out of the ocean, we'll know if it was Chinese or Alpha Centauri. Uh, yes, we well, unless, remember, if you're an ET civilization with advanced uh, technology, you can imitate anything. So it could even have Chinese markings on it. doesn't make it Chinese. If you do a deep forensic analysis of the materials, and find unusual ways that things are made, it, it just could be, you know, not exactly the way we think it is. All right, so we'll just have to hold our breath for another few days and see what the government has to say. I have a feeling that this is not the end of the story. Okay, um, I want to loop back, unless uh, Lori or John has something on this subject to communicate or contribute. Guys? I don't have too much to say about the Chinese okay. balloon. I'm I'm kind of just excited and watching to see what's going to happen on the world stage. <laughs> we are in the most interesting time. Okay, um, Russell, I want to loop back now to your life. You know, Ralph Edwards, this is your life. How did you wind up one of the world's preeminent remote viewers? How did you even craft and create the field How did you make it stick so it now is another branch of admitted science? How did you get the CIA to take it seriously? How did you wind up being invited to the Soviet Union by nothing less than the USSR Academy of Science? In other words, how did Russell Targ, young boy growing up wanting to be a scientist, wind up creating a stunning field of science in the 21st century? Well, you'll be happy to read my new book because my new book is sort of a memoir about remote viewing. new book is called Third Eye Spies, Learning Remote Viewing for the Masters. Third Eye Spies is the same name as a film that I put out a couple of years ago. So this is like the uh, sequel to my movie. But in this case, I really answer all of your questions. I got into remote viewing because as a child, I was doing magic. I was interested in sleight of hand and magic tricks because uh, I had that available to me next door to my father's bookshop in Chicago. And every kid loves to fool adults if they have a chance. So I, I had an introduction to doing magic. And then in New York, I could go to um, public magic shows on 42nd Street where there was a, something called Hubert's Flea Circus. In the Flea Circus, you had uh, a strong man who could bend a, a railroad a rail, um, spikes. There was a woman with no arms who could typewrite. There was a bisexual woman who had uh, physical parts of both a man and a woman. I don't know if she would be allowed on the street anymore but she was known as a hermaphrodite. I think today she'd be called um, 
something else, not bisexual. Anyway, so she was there, and so was the magician. So for a quarter, I could go and spend the day standing next to a card table where a magician is doing tabletop sleight of hand. And I could then go upstairs to the magic store where he bought his stuff and see magic tricks for sale and buy things that I like or could afford. So I had a little collection of things that I could bring on stage as a young teenager and I was doing that uh, up to age about 14. I was doing, um, I, was a, I was a very nearsighted 14-year-old magician doing magic for birthday parties and for art openings. And that, that's how I got into this all. And what I discovered is when I was on stage, sometimes what I, I would have correct impressions of what a person's house would look like. There's one of the tricks that everybody does is a mind reading trick where you try and answer a question that somebody has written on a card and you're holding it up to your forehead. And of course you've already read that card. But while I was pretending to read her mind, I would sometimes see what her house or her bedroom looks like. And I became interested in the fact that psychic abilities are available, and I sort of drifted away, uh, pretend magic, and got interested in the magic that was being published. And there was nearby Institute for Society for Psychical Research, is near Central Park, so I could just go and visit the ASPR, and they were very kind to a nearsighted 14-year-old who was interested in ESP. So I got interested in the actual uh, technology of psychic abilities from my experience on the stage and then from reading all of the things that were available from the uh, Society for Psychical Research. So did you ever, when you were doing the stage work, did you ever kind of amaze the uh, audience and the the um uh shall we say you know volunteer by revealing things that they were not revealing publicly oh frequently uh, well not personally i what i what i let's see keith morgan keeps beeping me is that something i should know i don't think so at the moment Do you know who keith, is keith morgan yeah keith, keith morgan is our it specialist outside washington and he runs. Yeah, they're just letting you know when the break is coming, Russ. The break is Thank coming. In- yeah, we got about ninety seconds. So, okay. So I, I I I could reveal what her house would look like. I never talked about her boyfriend or other personal matters. Well, that's good. <laughs> okay, but say I, what? Let's let's I, hold it there. We are at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, among three major guests, Russell Targ, pioneer in. The Science of Remote Viewing, Lori Williams, who is a another remote viewer of a different generation, and of course our own John Williams. And tonight we thought it would be interesting to use some bumper music from Bond films and other spy adventures, given the backdrop of the Chinese balloon and what we're discussing. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I can see every part, nothing hides in the heart to hurt me. I don't need love for what could will The other side is midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. 
Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, February 4th, 2023. My guests this morning are Russell Targ and Lori Williams and Jonathan Womack. And as you know, Russell is one of the pioneers of the establishment of the 21st science, this psychic science, this hyperdimensional science of remote viewing. And as he just told us in the last few minutes, he began at the uh, age of 14, doing parlor tricks, magic, uh, doing little presentations, shows. And when they came to the part where he would do the mind reading with people asking questions, he would sometimes, so you'd literally receive pictures of their, their lives and you'd interrupt their questions by interjecting things that normally they had no way of knowing how, how you could know. childhood is that I wanted to do something with remote viewing. Remote remote viewing is the ability that we all have that allows you to quiet your mind and describe and experience what's happening in the distance and what's happening in the future. And the most interesting thing that I discovered is that your accuracy and reliability of remote viewing is independent of how far away you're looking. There is no harder to describe what's going on in Soviet Siberia than it is to describe what's happening across the street. Similarly, and even more surprising, it's no harder to describe what's going to happen days or weeks in the future than it is to describe the thing that's going on at at the same time right now contemporaneously. So the future can be known. Future is available to us, and the future can affect the present. The future can't change the. The future cannot change the past, of course, but the future can affect the past. So we free, people frequently have precognitive dreams, where you have a dream that is not a wish fulfillment dream or is not an anxiety dream but it's a dream that has nothing at all to do with your daily life. And then you wake up, you tell somebody about this crazy dream you have, and then within hours of that dream, you then get feedback and the thing occurs. It may occur on a television screen or it may occur in your life. Generally, if what you're dealing with is a precognitive dream, it appears that that dream that you have at 6 a.m. is caused by something that you actually experience a couple of hours later. So the future is affecting your past. This is such a It's an important idea. It's as though your future brain is entangled. I miss it. It's as though your future awakened brain is entangled with your sleeping brain. Hmm. Laura, you wanted and, to say uh, something? Yeah, I was just going to say that that's actually what got me into remote viewing was that my whole life I was having precognitive dreams. I dreamt about 9-11. Some of my earliest dreams, even as a baby, were about these planes crashing into skyscrapers. And then I had a dream two years before it happened, a very detailed dream in which every single detail came true. Um, so it's it's very true that precognition 
is, a, is, is wrapped up with retrocausality, which is what Russell's talking about, where the future actually affects the past. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, and I teach it in a lot of the classes that I teach. And, and, uh, to, make, and to make that work well, you want to give, the, in a classroom, you want to give immediate feedback because it's the feed, in the classroom situation, it's the feedback that drives the phenomenon. I have frequent, like every other month, I will have a dream that is corresponding very strongly to the first thing I see on my uh, television screen, which is the New York Times. (laughs) So I can have a dream. I'll tell you a brief. I'll tell you briefly, because I know telling your dreams is about as boring as telling about your last uh, acid. It's about tell, like talk, telling your last acid trip. But for example, I had a dream, which is described in my book, actually. I, I, I dreamt about uh, having a miniature toy railroad train running around the ceiling of my living room. It was a, like a a kid's toy train with a square front and lights on going in a circle around my living room, which is a high ceiling. So, and I, I don't have any kids here. I don't have any trains here. Never did. And I told my wife about this. My, my, my scheme is I don't get credit for a dream in the, in the big book unless I tell my wife about it before it occurs. <laughs> so in this case, I told her about the electric train then I turned on my computer, whose homepage is the New York Times, and on the front page of the New York Times, they had a story about rebuilding the elevated in Chicago. And in downtown Chicago, it's called the Loop, because the train goes in a circle around the whole downtown area uh, to, as a way of reversing itself from going north to going south. Like a toy and train. And I was very familiar with that area because my father's bookstore in Chicago was right under the elevated. So I, when, this thing, when, I, when this thing appeared on my screen, I was absolutely blown away because there was a beautiful picture of elevated tracks going in a circle. And I, and I published that in my brand new book because it's a perfect example of a dream being caused by the feedback that I get a couple of hours earlier. And the idea of entanglement is now totally kosher. Three scientists have got a Nobel Prize last uh, September for their demonstration that photons that are uh, born together remain together. That is, your photons that are created in the same experience can go across the universe, and if you grab one, it affects the other one, even though it's far, far away. So that kind of entanglement, I, I'm asserting that the that the idea of entanglement that they show with photons is the entanglement between the waking brain and the sleeping brain, so that if the waking brain at 10 o'clock sees a railroad track, you can see that in the experience of the sleeping brain because those brains are connected okay question when you were growing up did you ever have a set of toy trains i certainly did so the way this communication seems to work is that the event which has a its own reality appears to you in a symbolic version of your reality your experience because obviously you weren't literally seeing a toy train on the ceiling of your current home, but these are kind of mixed metaphorical messages, and they're not really useful because unless you can decode the multi-level symbolism, there's no way you could a priori have used that to say they're going to redo the loop in Chicago, and uh, you know when you see the news story in two hours. No, but if you do a careful experiment you can use this kind of precognitive ability to forecast changes in the silver commodity futures in the stock market. And we did that shortly after I left SRI. We did nine trials 
to forecast whether the market is going to go up or go go down, up a little or down a little. And all nine of our forecasts were correct. And we made a quarter million dollars for our nine trials. That was nine trials, no errors. And we did not publish that in the um, American Society for Psychical Research. We published that on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so why didn't you open the little shop with a sign that says, market forecast 100% guaranteed? Well, a number of reasons for not doing that. Uh, the variable in that is how the viewers are feeling. So that uh, in our case, we began to get carried away with delusions of grandeur <laughs> and how we're going to how we're going to court how we are going to corner the silver market. And our investor wanted to do the things twice as often, the two times a week. And we tried that, and the fact that the viewer did not get feedback for trial one until he had done trial two uh, interfered with that working. However, there's an organization called IRVA, which is the International Association for Remote Viewing, which just had its 50th anniversary, and there are many, many people in IRVA who are not researchers but they're using remote viewing to make money, generally not in the stock market, but in gambling and sports events, which give you a better return on your investment. So the idea of encouraging people to have a psychic experience of their future uh, has been harnessed now. We had a couple of hundred people at this conference uh, just to celebrate remote viewing. As they fear, as I started the program in 1972, and we in, in 2022 we uh, celebrated our 50th anniversary of remote viewing. The so remote viewing is still thriving. When you say and, it's and, still, and, go ahead. Go ahead. I was I was just going to say that Russell pretty much invented associated remote viewing, and I'll be teaching a class on it this coming week from the 10th to the 12th. It's a three-day workshop on associated remote viewing, and every class that I teach, we have a 100% accuracy rate in predicting the outcome of games, of any kind of a game. So that's why we're holding it on Super Bowl weekend oh. um, because we have, so far we have not never failed. We have correctly predicted the outcome of the games. Um, and so it's really, it's a lot of fun. We do, we play roulette in the class. We do uh, prediction of games. We, uh, I teach people how to pick a winning scratch off. And so far in all my classes, students win money when they go out during the lunch break to utilize this technique to pick a winning scratch-off ticket. So we've been having a lot of fun utilizing associative remote viewing. Well, see, over the years, where you... this has been one of the critics' uh, criticisms, which is, well, if this is real, guys, you know, there'd be people, talented people use it, and they'd, they'd own the world. And all I've seen in the literature I reviewed is that it either does not work or it's set at a low level that it's been indistinguishable from noise and there's been a whole bunch of, you know, kind of uh, frames, cultural frames built around it. Like if people try to use it for their own benefit, it doesn't work, that kind of thing. But what you're telling well, me, greed, go, go ahead. Really plays a role. I think greed definitely plays a role in having it not work. <laughs> you know, like if you're really like, feel avarice, like, oh, I'm going to get rich from this. It seems that it does have a negative effect on it. But I can tell you that I've taught thousands of students now. I probably teach more students more often than any other remote viewing teacher on the planet. Um, I have 120,000 followers. And the, the thing about CRV and ARV is that if you have the right attitude, it seems like it works exceedingly well. But let me ask you a question, Richard. If you found a gold ring in your backyard, you might tell everybody like, oh, my gosh, it was amazing. I found this gold ring. You know, it's a really old ring and it's worth a lot of money or whatever. But if you found a treasure chest worth millions in your backyard, you probably wouldn't tell anyone about it because you would you'd be a little bit worried about what would happen if you spread that around. 
And so when people always say, well, how come, you know, there's not more people winning the lottery? Well, no, number one, how do we know that there's not? You know, I think there are a lot of people winning the lottery. I wanted to say two things. First of all, thank well, you. Well, wait, wait, so you mean a lot of people using remote viewing like you just yes, described. Okay. Are making money. And they're doing it quietly on the QT. I want to thank Lori for giving me credit for inventing remote viewing, but I did not do that. It was invented by Stephen Schwartz. Oh, the associate. I'm talking about associative remote viewing specifically. Yeah, that that belongs to Stephen. Oh, good to know. I know Stephen. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. The other other thing I wanted to say is why are we going to the trouble of doing that? It would be nice if you just say, uh, there's a big board called the Big Board. It's in, on Wall Street, and it will put up the uh, price of silver at the end of the week. Why don't you look at the board? And the answer is it's almost impossible to guess numbers. If a really? person could learn to look at the Big Board on Wall Street, on the commodity exchange, that would make things a lot easier. But that's basically impossible to do. Because guessing numbers is a analytical ability. You have to guess right. the numbers. And so the, and, the and, and, and we're very bad at doing analysis. Right. But one of the things we've learned is that the body is the link between the conscious and the subconscious mind. And so what we found is that the body seems to be linked to the subconscious, which seems to have all the information in all of time and space. So when we teach people how to utilize their bodies, to get the responses and the answers that they need, that's the way they come up with answers and avoiding the whole numerical issue altogether. And so I'll give you an example. I walked into one of the IRVA conferences. Um, Russ just mentioned IRVA, and he and I have been speakers at many of those conferences together. And I walked in, and a bunch of my students ran up. They were all excited, and they said, we just won a bunch of money at the casino because we used the techniques that you taught us, and we were able to determine the first second and third place winners of the triple crown. So the guy's like, I, I bet 40 bucks and I made $1,600. And they mm. were super excited by, uh, by being able to do this. And how did they do it? They didn't try to do any numbers whatsoever. What they did was they just remote viewed the colors of the blankets of the first, second. Oh and third my place. gosh. How cute. And, Russell, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of your remote viewing work at SRI, and I want to kind of do a random walk to get to SRI in a minute, had to do with artists drawing pictures of what you guys saw. You would describe it, or you do the sketches yourself. Why couldn't you do just sketches of a board? Because, you know, a board is a picture, is a a pattern of light and shadow shading. It's it's a signal-to-noise problem. We have to teach people. Inigo Swan is the one who articulated that for us. It's a, you have to improve. You, we don't know how to improve the psychic signal, but we've been very skillful at learning to diminish the psych, the mental noise. That is, if you have, if I, if I tell you that I'm thinking of a number from one to 10 and I'll give you a million dollars if you guess my number, you, you'll immediately say, well, he wouldn't pick one or ten because he just named those numbers, and he probably wouldn't pick seven because everybody lucky number. And that process you just I just described is an analytical number, and the that analysis is what interferes with guessing things that have an analytical answer. Now, when Ingo, when Ingo first came to our lab at SRI, this is Ingo Swan the great natural psychic and visionary artist, he said, I'm not going to spend any more time looking in the box or looking in the next room. That's a trivialization of my ability. If I can focus my attention anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area, why would I look in your little box? I want to open the box. See, I'll look in the box. And he said, why don't why don't?" why don't you have somebody go hide in the Bay Area and I'll describe what it looks like where he is. So Ingo, in one sentence, invented the idea of the remote viewing that we're doing. He said, if he can look anywhere in the world, give me a target that's worth doing. 
so he would describe the environment, and someone would sketch it, right? No, he would sketch it. Okay, so the, the, uh, why, viewer, why, can't, why, why can't someone sketch the big board for the S&P 500? It's a, because it's an analytical task. That is a view, the viewer is trying to quiet his mind. But what I tell my viewer, I basically have a one-sentence introduction to remote viewing. And that is, I say, uh, Lori's going to hide somewhere. I have no idea where it is. Could you just take a couple of deep breaths and tell me about the surprising images that show up in your awareness? That's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. I don't tell her how to do it. Don't tell her what to do. I tell them, just quiet your mind and look for a surprise. And they will then find the surprising element about what she's done, doing. And I, and that works flawlessly. I've done that with the Undersecretary of Defense who came to decide if we could teach the Army how to be psychic. And he gave a wonderful description of a of fountain where he and his he gave a wonderful description of his of a fountain where my partner Hal and his major had gone to hide as a random place. I ne- see. I'm the interviewer, and I never know the answer. So I, I I'm a I'm the I'm a blind partner. It has nothing to do with my vision. But I can I can say anything I want to the viewer to help him because I don't know anything about the answer except it's within a half hour drive of SRI. So because I've been doing this now for twenty years, I can often tell that a person is guessing or trying to name things, and I say, why don't we start over and just tell me what you're experiencing? Don't don't, don't try and name it. And that's often helpful. I even I once had an Israeli physicist, a very famous guy who's going to get a Nobel Prize one of these days, named Ranoff. And he was brought to me because he was a skeptic, and he was a very smart guy. And I was supposed to show him what remote viewing looks like. And he was very shocked to find out that he's going to be the viewer. Because whenever I have to do a demonstration, it's always a skeptic who's the viewer. And I say uh, that your your friend, together with Hal, gone to hide somewhere. Uh, can you what can you tell me about where they are? And he says, I don't know about you, Russ, but when I close my eyes, it's dark. So I said, Well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And finally, I said, Well, they're going to be back here in ten minutes. Why don't you, I know you don't see anything. Why don't you close your eyes and pretend that you see something? Make something up as though it's a, <laughs> as, as though it's a free response psychological experiment. Just if you make something up, what do you see? He says, I see, I see some ducks crossing the road. My mother in Israel had a duck farm, and that's what I see. And what you can guess is the place that they had randomly been sent to is a duck pond in Palo Alto by the airport. <laughs> so, which were associated because of his own childhood background. That's right. So the interviewer plays a surprisingly strong part in coaxing the person to part with his psychic experiences, but he's never done it before. And I've had to do that many, many times where my reward for doing that is the person will continue the funding for our program. <laughs> and I wound up having to, we chose six people who were part of Army Intelligence, and we had to choose six, and I had to do experiments with all six of them. And if they were successful, then we got to create a psychic Army Corps, and we did that, and that Corps ran for another decade. Okay, uh, we got about five minutes to the top of the hour. Let me ask this. Let me answer. Let me answer the one question you asked, though. You said, "Why can't someone just sketch the board?" And the reason is because nowadays, what we use is controlled remote viewing, and what we know is that it's based on brain science. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You, 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 I tell you, when we come back, we need to define these terms. 
the difference between controlled remote viewing and associative remote viewing. This is like down in the weeds, but it's important to be on the same page. So, so let me hold that. We'll ask that when we come back when we have time for your answer. Let me go back to Russell. Russell, given this huge China thing, would it be useful to get a remote viewer or more than one to try to figure out, to, to do a template match with what the intention is? In other words, instead of trying to describe equipment and whatever, to get in the minds of whoever set this thing up to what they're up to, what the intention is. Can can this science do that? Uh, that's very, that would be very hard to do because what we're doing, what we're so, very successful at this doing is describing what you experience at a later time or, or what's happening at a later time. We've never, we've not, uh, we've not, what you're talking about, a kind of mental telepathy. And I think that the signal to noise ratio of mental telepathy is not as great as what you can achieve when you have an actual object to describe. Hmm. Although, although I've, I've had a completely different experience in working with all these students, thousands of students, and I was actually able to get the information from a kidnapper using remote viewing, accessing the name of the organization that had done the kidnapping, and it turned out to be accurate. So we're finding that there is a, a way to get around the signal-to-noise ratio and even to work alone without an interviewer. Uh, but we are using kind of an evolved type of remote viewing now. And so we can talk about that maybe after the break. Yeah, by all means. The other thing, Russell, you said something interesting a little while ago, and we will not have time to get into this on this side of the break, but you said that over the decades you've been doing this, <clears throat> you've had two problems. One is the amplification of the signal and the reduction of the noise in the receiver and you've been able to reduce the noise, but you haven't figured out how to amplify the signal. Is that an accurate uh, reflection of what you what you said? That's exactly what I said. Okay. Have you tried external modalities to try to amplify the signal? And I'll give you an example. Have you put your experiment inside a pyramid, which we found no, from we, our – say again? What? what? Uh, a number of people put the person inside of an electrically shielded room, and my impression is that uh, for, from several people's work, putting a person in an electrically shielded room will cut down the noise from uh, what's going on in the planetary motions and uh, interstellar noise coming into the Earth. So there's a, a, a daily number associated with the noise. And what we've discovered is that if you put somebody in a shielded room, that does improve their performance. Hmm. Okay. Well, that occasion is a discussion on the return back from the break of about the physics of how this might work. I'll tell you what, let's hold it there. My guest of the morning is Russell Targ and Laurie Williams and John... Uh, Womack is being very quiet in the background. He's either thinking of a really good question or a really good example. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking this morning, remote viewing, the 21st science of figuring out where things are when they're not where you are. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return momentarily. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. 
You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>